Chasing Lights Chapter 12 What is hip? In 1973, the R&B funk band Tower of Power recorded a song that asked that question. And despite an awesome horn section, they mostly avoided answering by Riley commenting on all the things people did in 1973 to be hip. The band observed that whatever is hip now might become passé in the future. I doubt that I have ever been hip. I was too far away and too late to the game but I still tried to be a little hip enough anyway to go out into the world. I had one more year of school left before leaving home. Most of my credits were complete, so I took on a very light course load and found a job to help pay for college. In the early 1980s, music was still stored on large black vinyl discs that spun around on turntables. To be heard, those turntables had to be connected to amplifiers, speakers, and usually to tape decks and radios, also known then as tuners. I walked into a store in the Sears Mall not far from home that sold both records and stereos and somehow got a job as a salesman. I knew nothing about sound systems, and beyond Stairway to Heaven, I knew less about popular music. It was, however, a much better job than Burger King. It paid more. I didn't have to wear an orange nylon tunic or come home smelling of onion rings. Instead, the dress code was flared slacks and a buttoned-up shirt. I looked like a salesman, even though I couldn't grow that droopy 1970s mustache that all the other guys had. I wonder if they thought the mustache made them look like Robert Redford, because it didn't. As a salesman, I stood around the store, listened to records, and talked to people about music and electronics. It was a dream job. Somehow it combined cool and geeky in one package, and I got paid to do it. When someone came in looking for a new stereo, that's when we went into the special sound room to demonstrate equipment. There was a, a lot of technical information to learn, but the manager put me at ease when he said, whenever some guy comes in here asking about watts, ohms, and amps, he's not buying. He's showing off. You could ignore those guys. Just get them out of the sound room. The sale was mostly made on how the stereo looked, how it sounded, and quite often on whether the music playing on the demo unit was something that the customer liked. The first few moments of the sale were then about finding out what they liked to listen to, and then I would have to connect in a genuine way about the music. You like jazz? Well, well what do you think of Dave Brubeck? Everyone likes Brubeck's Take 5, even people who don't like jazz very much. Or well, maybe the customer preferred Dinah Washington or Miles Davis. It didn't matter what. As long as they started to tell you what they liked to hear. Of course, the customer might love stadium rock. Well, that's when I might say, you know, I can't stop listening to Foreigner's 4 album. I, I don't listen to a lot of heavy metal, but that album is awesome when you crank it. Classical music basically meant grabbing the Mozart or the Vivaldi album. An ABBA fan? Well, any of their songs were guaranteed to delight. I didn't have to look at the record. I just dropped the needle anywhere. 
Occasionally, there would be a customer who said, I like everything, or I just like good sound. Now, counterintuitively, those were the easiest customers. And depending on their age, I would select Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells, an early electronic album, Mannheim Steamroller, a mashup of pop, classical, and electronic music, or Morning Dance, a cheerful Latin jazz fusion album by Spira Gyra that was used as intro music by the local news program. See, my popular music education was late and odd. Instead of looking for music I liked or that spoke to me, I was learning what pleased and connected to others. Instead of deciding what music was good, bad, or commercial, I learned that it was all good. All of it had value, even the cheesiest pop tune, especially when someone wanted to hear it. The more I learned about customers, the more likely they would buy. If I got caught up with my own patter though, or some newly acquired knowledge about music or the equipment, no sale. The cooler I think I am, the less interesting I become. For too long, I assumed that listening to someone was about hearing the words, paying close attention to the points made, and then finding a prompt to say something brilliant myself. I listened for the opportunity to speak instead of for a chance to learn. It was never about me. The dual flywheel drive on the tape deck or the polyethylene bass cone on the speakers. It's about the other person. Now, because we were the record store, we felt like the coolest workers in the whole mall. And uh, when we sold tickets for the Blue Oyster Cult concert, well, we must have been rock stars ourselves. The mall had a music system which was basically a reel-to-reel tape player in our store that hooked up to all the mall speakers. It played a constant drone of watery-sounding music. Occasionally, a melody would sound familiar, but it never really was. I guess there could have been some Burt Bachrock in there, but probably his lesser-known works. And when the mall closed at night and the customers were gone, every store would close and get ready for the next day, and we would help by swapping the music for something by the Rolling Stones, Talking Heads, The Who, or Aerosmith. This made us feel hip and generous at the same time as we cranked it. There's a section in Pink Floyd's The Wall, which has the sound of a military helicopter landing. Now, every once in a while, we would play that section at full blast, making it sound like a helicopter had landed somewhere between the old-time candy store and one of the places that sold shoes. We all agree that it was a brilliant move, even after the shoe store manager yelled at us. I worked there until I left for college a year later. Now, on commission, I made more money than I would again for 10 more years. Now, before that job, I couldn't really talk about music with people since I had little exposure to it. I would just nod or say non-committal things like impressive or cool. I didn't fool anyone, but at least it kept the conversation going. But as a music salesman, I was suddenly part of the conversation. I was asked for recommendations. And when I said, cool, I knew what I was saying. I felt hip. No one told me that working in a record store was probably as uncool as being the president of the drama club. And thank goodness no one did. So I could enjoy a momentary delusion 
of hipness. The job gave me enough confidence to do something I really wanted to do. A friend told me that a fellow classmate worked as a disc jockey, my dream job. His mother owned an AM radio station that played soft pop tunes and music from the 50s and 60s. The format was called adult contemporary, which was the opposite of hip. But in my mind, all radio stations were cool no matter what they played. To me, the music was second to the announcer. The idea of talking to an entire city, even if it was just a weather report or the name of the next song, was exciting. A, a live microphone, no redo, just one shot at getting the moment right. And the best announcers, well, they managed to be funny and smart and somehow intimate. As a well-known Chicago DJ likes to say, I'm your best friend in the whole world. I knew that I wanted to be a DJ, so I walked up to the guy that worked at his mom's station, and I said, what do I have to do to work at your station? Now, usually that sort of question leads nowhere. But in this case, he said, I think we have an opening. There was a single shift on Saturday nights between midnight and six in the morning. As awful as it might sound, it was perfect for me. Neither my job nor school intersected with that time frame. I could do it. And one afternoon, I went to the studio to meet the engineer and learn how to do my new job. The operation of the board, changing of songs, taking phone calls from listeners and playing commercials was all up to the DJ. It was exciting to walk into the studio for the first time. Racks of equipment lined the walls with flashing lights, knobs and dials. It looked like a NASA control room. Feelings of excitement, though, were quickly replaced by a general sense of panic. How can I run this? I, I, I don't even know what it is. It turned out that I mostly knew what it was. Months of working at the stereo store gave me the general principles of sound transmission and amplification. I didn't know the official names for much of the equipment, and I often had to make up words to keep track, like... I don't know, dynamic flattener or mic kill switch or input switcher or phone connector. Those names seemed to work well enough, even if they weren't strictly accurate. The engineer was patient with me. He and my friend together decided that I needed a special on-air name. My real name seemed too foreign and strange for radio, so we all decided to call me GB Bomber instead. Equally strange. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea. Quickly, they grabbed a couple of sound effects records from the shelf for the sound of a plane diving into a crash. They recorded the track, then played it while my friend spoke with an old-time radio voice. Going over the recording again, he pumped up the reverb so it had a big echo, then synced up the track so that his voice ended just as the crash sound started. It took no time for them to do it at all, and it completely delighted the three of us. Look, look in the sky. It, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's... Things like that really delight radio geeks. And, and so I now had a goofy radio name and an intro to play whenever I came on the air. I had walked through and learned the controls, and now all that was left was to talk on the air. After reviewing everything we had discussed, the engineer asked for my radio license. The license had arrived in the mail the day before. 
Originally, I thought that getting a license from the Federal Communications Commission would be difficult, probably involving detailed questions about the emergency radio network, arcana about transmission standards, or at least guidelines for what I was allowed to say on the air. I received the application, and after filling out my name, address, and so on, I was only asked one question. Are you, or have you ever been, a member of the Communist Party? That was it. It was the only thing the FCC wanted to know. I confidently wrote no, and fortunately that was the right answer because my license arrived a week or two later. I gave the card to the engineer, and he took it over to an old cork bulletin board where a dozen cards, just like mine, were haphazardly pinned up with thumbtacks. He found an unused tack and stabbed my brand new license to the cork. It seemed like he did it with an ironic flourish, as if he didn't see it as actually important. And as proud as I was to be licensed by the FCC, I didn't have a driver's license at this point, it felt somehow disrespectful to poke a hole in it. I could see, however, that most of the cards had multiple holes in them, almost like badges of honor. The cool kids had the most holes. The license ceremony complete, we went back to the studio. It was live, and the sitting announcer had stepped out for us. A song was winding down as the engineer held out the wheeled office chair for me to sit down. I did, then rolled the chair up to the desk with the microphone and tapes all synced up in the player. I checked the next slot next to make sure another song was ready to go. And with five seconds left, I pulled the mic to my mouth and I turned it on. The song ended. I breathed in. Nothing. No words. I had no idea what to say. Hours before, I had planned and practiced all sorts of brilliant patter, but with the mic on and nothing but the sound of my own breathing, there was nothing to say. Another second passed, but still nothing there. Aware of my friend and the engineer standing behind me, as well as the bead of sweat falling down my back, I quickly reached out to the tape player and punched the button for the next song. And so, my first moment on the air was completely silent. But I got another chance. The last chord of the song started to fade when I switched on the mic one more time. That was Steve Miller Band's The Joker. Coming up, Landslide by Fleetwood Mac and featuring the distinctive warble of the beautiful and brilliant Stevie Nicks. And that's just the start of an extended set here at KENI. Stay tuned. Then I pushed the button. Wow, I did it. I sounded like a DJ. I said something. I didn't make any big mistakes. That was great. And that's when I turned away from the board to my friend and the engineer, both of whom were doubled over laughing. What? What, what, what did I do? That's when my friend managed to stifle his laughter long enough to ask me, What station is this? K-A-N-C, I said. And then I slumped over. Somehow I called the station by the competitor's name, K-E-N-I. Now, at that point, I was certain that I was fired. But I wasn't. The engineer and my friend admitted that they had done similar things their first time as well. 
And afterwards, I continued to make mistakes as I learned the job. But from that point forward, I always got the station ID right, and I always knew what to say before I turned on the microphone. And then every Saturday night, after finishing up work at the record store and eating dinner, I would bicycle to the radio station to start my shift. I would pick out the first six songs, find out which ads were supposed to run, and check the weather report. Then I would cue the ridiculous GB bomber intro and start up with a song. It was a job, of course. I got paid a little, but it was also one of the few times when I would have done the work for nothing. I loved to pull the mic down to my mouth, watch the timer count down to the end of the song, flip the mic switch, then start talking. There were no retakes. Whatever you said was what everyone heard and the goal was to be a friend to whomever listened, then play the next song. During my shifts, I was the only one at the station. Most of the time I stayed in the control room. Two or three minutes uh, for a pop song doesn't allow much time for wandering around. That's why there were three songs that I would play every night. Don McLean's American Pie at eight minutes and 42 seconds. The Rolling Stones, You Can't Always Get What You Want, 7 minutes, 28 seconds. And of course, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven at 8 minutes and 3 seconds. With 8 minutes, it's possible to go to the bathroom and make a cup of tea or just wander around and jump up and down to wake up. The most frightening sound during a shift was silence. We called it dead air, and it was the one thing I couldn't let happen. Silence meant jumping back to the booth and hitting the button for the next song or clumsily turning the mic on and stalling for time while grabbing another song. Songs were recorded on special one-song cassettes in plastic containers that looked like eight-track tapes from the 1970s. They were called carts, probably an abbreviation for the word cartridges, but I never asked. Continuous loops of tape, they would play all the way through and then automatically cue up to the beginning again. And on the spine of each cart, were several timings listed, how long the song was, how long the introduction was before the singing started, and how fast the song faded at the end. Of course, the name of the song and the artist were also listed. And thanks to those carts, I started to learn all the bands that I had heard casually on the radio for years. So I might realize, oh, that song is by Elton John. I never knew. It would get lonely around three in the morning. Sometimes listeners would call in just to talk. There was one woman who called me several times. She was friendly and chatty, and it was nice to have a little company. One weekend, she kept saying that she wanted to visit me at the station. I told her not to and invented a rule that I wasn't allowed to have anyone join me for security reasons. She wouldn't give it up, though, and kept talking about it. At the end of my shift, I pulled out my bicycle when I saw a car smashed into a barrier in the parking lot. A woman in her late 30s was crying and talking to a cop. I recognized her voice from the calls, but she didn't recognize me. She saw a kid on a bike, not the radio announcer that she imagined. I didn't stop, but went straight home. She seemed lonely and disoriented. There wasn't anything I could do to help, but it felt like I was somehow responsible. I talked to her. I let her imagine 
I was this cool guy that I wasn't. I was nice. You know, there was something wrong with the way I was nice. It seemed like a good thing to be, but after many years, I realized that my niceness wasn't completely generous. By being nice, I asked for something in exchange. I was doing it so that anyone I was nice to might love me or admire me. The ask wasn't explicit, but it was there. My niceness wasn't a giving, it was a taking. I was hungry for love and admiration, and for some reason I was convinced that no one could like me as is. To make up for that, I played the part of someone appealing to whomever I met. Who do you want me to be? I can do that. A couple of years later, in another radio job on the other side of the country, a woman started to call me every week, not wanting to repeat history or make real the Clint Eastwood psychological thriller Play Misty for Me, which is about a DJ stalked by a woman who calls him at night. I was much more careful. I tried to stay distant in the conversations. This caller would change her name and backstory every weekend but it was clearly the same woman. If I ever told her something I liked, the next week she would integrate that into her persona. If I mentioned that I bicycled, the next week she would talk about a race she was going to. When I talked about a book, she became an expert on that book the next week. Who do you want me to be? I can do that. Since I was alone at night, I decided I could get away with inviting a real friend to visit. I didn't ask for permission, but it never occurred to me that it might be a problem. Very few people were interested in visiting a radio station at three in the morning, but my best friend was game. He worked at a local drugstore as an assistant manager and got off late. And he came to the studio afterwards. And after giving him a tour of the place, we decided that we should do an on-air interview. Neither of us had ever done anything like that before, but why not? Just as the music faded, my friend gave the closing speech he made every night over the intercom at his drugstore. Attention, shoppers. I found it very difficult to stifle laughter as he delivered the entire speech completely straight. It seemed brilliantly funny for some reason in this new context, and after he finished, I interviewed him as if his speech was a musical performance. I asked about what inspired him, how he prepared, and what brought him to this point in his career, that, that sort of thing. It was funny to me, but I doubt that anyone listening would have found it as hilarious as I did. In retrospect, I'm just glad that no one was awake at the time. My senior year was mostly dominated by work. I felt lucky to have both jobs. I couldn't understand why everyone else in the world didn't see how awesome it all was. Eventually, I accepted that being a salesman in the mall and a DJ after midnight was not something that most people aspired to do. I was never hip. But 40 years later, I still think radio is wonderful. <laughs>